0: Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 55 with Isabel nagel Bryce. If you're concerned about chemicals, air quality, using natural materials in your tiny house, Isabel is a tiny house consultant who guides people through the different phases of their builds with the goal of building a healthy tiny house. It's a really informative interview and we cover a lot, so definitely stick around and get ready to learn about how to make a healthy tiny house. If you're struggling making decisions for your unique tiny house, I hope you'll check out my signature guide and resource called Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is the guide that I wish I had when I built my tiny house, and it contains three sections to help you make decisions for every step of the process. This guide has helped thousands of readers with their tiny houses. I literally have hundreds of testimonials from people who have read tiny house decisions, put it to use, and now live tiny. To learn more and take 20% off any package, visit thetinyhouse.net slash THD. Use the coupon code tiny for 20% off. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD coupon code TINY for 20% off. Alright, I am here with Isabel nagel Bryce. Uh, Isabel is a tiny house consultant guiding people through the different phases of their builds. She has put together the Healthy Tiny House Kit which she offers to DIY and professional builders looking to build a chemical-free and healthy tiny home with continuous fresh air ventilation. Additionally, A Tiny Good Thing offers building materials and natural practice goods inside and out for living small, intentionally, on or off the grid. Isabel is passionate about living simply and encouraging others to also have less of an environmental impact. Isabel nagel Bryce, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You're very welcome. I was hoping we could start off just by talking about how you define, how do you look at what makes a tiny house or any house for that matter, a healthy house versus an unhealthy house?
1: Sure. Yeah. I think there are different levels uh, to that question. I think initially um, for me, focusing on having intention with every step of the way. And if you're building your own home, um, you kind of know that there's a lot of research that goes into each phase Um, and for me, I have a background in natural building and in permaculture. And so I wanted to build a home that was not only, um, smaller in size, so more healthy for the environment um, where I could reduce my environmental impact and footprint, Um, but also look at all of the materials that go into the home. Um, And a lot of the time, the building materials are looked over, and those are actually some of the most toxic materials that are put into homes, um, along with like carpets and mattresses and things like that that you wouldn't think of right off the bat. Um, And so I began a search trying to find materials that were low to zero VOC. So um, VOC is Volatile Organic uh, Chemicals. So basically, there are VOCs everywhere, um, but certain VOCs affect your health more than others. Um, And then I also wanted to focus on the efficiency of those materials and how high performing they are, depending on the climate that you're in. Um, tiny houses are on wheels and although you know a home might be built in Florida, you don't know where it's going to end up and someone could buy it and it could end up in Alaska. So I wanted to uh, research materials that could function really well in any climate or most climates.
0: Got it. So to back up, I'm glad that you defined VOC because I was going to ask you. So mm-hmm. what about a material material? is volatile? Like, is it just the material itself or is it something that it's doing to like the air or to you?
1: Right. That's a great, um, that's a great question. I guess, uh, I guess an example that I have is like wood flooring, for example, like the material, the wood is not necessarily going to off gas VOCs. So off gas chemicals, but it's the sealer that you put on the wood. So if you're installing a hardwood floor yourself Or if you're reclaiming wood like I did, you're going to plane it and sand it and install it. And then you're going to put a sealer on top. Um, Depending on what sealer you use, uh, what product, that's going to off-gas as it cures, as it dries and hardens. And so depending on the material, it can basically be off-gassing chemicals. And there's a lifespan of that off-gassing. Although, um, it's been found that with materials like spray foam insulation, which is very, very common in tiny homes, um, if that doesn't cure properly, if it doesn't, um, if it doesn't solidify in the right temperature, the right humidity, um, basically the right climate at that exact time, then it can continue to off gas uh, for a very long time. Um, and that's the same with like uh, vinyl flooring or, or anything that has vinyl on it, um, laminate floors. Um, etc. So being aware of not only the installation phase of that material like spray foam you know people who install that they need to wear masks they need to cover their body because it's very toxic Um, and for me personally with a natural background uh, even if it were to cure properly um, which I'm sure in many cases it does and it doesn't continue to off gas forever um, that the installation of that material puts a lot of chemicals into the atmosphere. And so not just thinking about myself living in my house, but how my house impacts uh, the earth and, and the environment.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I was led to believe that spray foam, you know, once it did cure, wasn't going to be a health risk in the home, but I do understand that it's extremely volatile while it's curing and Certainly, have lots of opportunities to come into contact with it in a tiny home, even after the building process.
1: Yeah, and this is definitely a controversial topic, um, and you know, everyone has their own sensitivities, whether they they notice them or not, or they're you know, this is something that kind of creeps up on people. Um, you know, I've I've read um, cases and and court cases of people who install spray foam in their attic, for example, and they put an attic bedroom up there and then they start slowly getting headaches and migraines and they don't really realize it for a while. And then, and then as they eliminate other factors, they're able to figure out the culprit, which is the spray foam. Uh Um, and, and so there are more and more stories coming out. And I also think related to the tiny house movement specifically, I mean, it's a fairly young movement, especially when I was starting to build. um, And therefore it's progressing really quickly um, and more and more information every day is coming out. Um, And those types of stories are starting to kind of come to the surface, um, but also stories of the home actually not functioning well due to the building material. So not necessarily the health of the inhabitants, but the health of the home. Um, which can result in moisture issues, mildew, mold, um, thermal bridging through the trailer, which which can produce that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can go into those more technical things a little bit later, if you'd like.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I would love to. And what you were just saying kind of made me realize or think about the fact that a lot of tiny homes are DIY built and that even if a material is considered low VOC in its, you know, long-term use, it might still be pretty dangerous when you're cutting it with a chop saw or a table saw and releasing, you know, dust of that product. So I would imagine that that a big part of what you do also is helping to advise people on the safety of actually, you know, while you're installing this, what kind of safety equipment do you need to use?
1: Yeah, definitely. And and I honestly mostly work with people who are building with healthy materials. So they don't really have to worry about um, the process of while while they're building. Um, and a lot of people with the spray foam, you know, they hire that out. So they're not necessarily in contact with that. Um And, you know, I I just like to say if you're going to be putting materials into your home and into a tiny home, that's a small space with a small amount of air that you're going to be inhaling um, to put materials in your home that you would wear on your body, um, that you would feel comfortable touching with your skin Um, and so I sell, uh, all natural sheep's wool insulation, um, which is a really neat product because you can blow it in. Um, but they also create, uh, bat insulation, which is basically just bound in that form, um, via a felting method, like a needle felting method. So there aren't any chemical binders in it. Um, And so I love talking to people and saying, you know, like you're wearing a wool sweater right now and you can also put that in your wall system and it's going to create a really efficient wall system.
0: And what's the relative like what's the R value of of a two by four wall or or of of um, sorry, what's the R value of sheep's wool insulation?
1: Yeah. So since we're talking about tiny homes specifically, it's usually a two by four wall system. Um, and so it's around R15, R16. You can get a little bit more with the blow in um, sheep's wool. And then, you know, that also depends on what type of studs you're using and what type of thermal bridging you're taking into consideration. Um, and I I also work with clients who are in really cold climates. And so they want to put an exterior board on the outside of their sheathing and their house wrap, which will add like an additional R6 uh, to the whole wall system and help mitigate the issues of, of thermal bridging. Right, right. And thermal bridging for anyone who doesn't know is um, basically temperature transfer. Um, It doesn't really have much to do with humidity and moisture but when you have cold uh, coming through your wall from the outside in along that stud, that cold temperature will then um, create condensation on the inside of your home if, if the humidity is high inside the home which is very common for tiny houses.
0: Yeah, and I I will say so. I live in a tiny house in in Vermont and it's stick framed two by four, and I am spray foamed. Um, But I, you know, didn't think to do that outsolation or, you know, putting a sheathing on the outside that had some thermal qualities to it. So I definitely have the thermal bridging. And, you know, my house functions, it's not dysfunctional, but um, I've always felt like it could be warmer. Than it is,
1: yeah, right, definitely.
0: I'm curious about um about sheet goods because you know it's it's difficult to escape them, especially in at least just sheathing the house. If not, um, you know, floor underlayment, potentially even interior wall sheathing. Um, what do you advise in terms of VOCs and sheet goods?
1: Yeah. So you're specifically speaking to like OSB or zip system sheathing, right?
0: Sure. Or even just, you know, the plywood <laughs> that we use to build cabinets yeah. or, yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. Um, so definitely plywood is a better option than OSB, um, for like your subfloor, for example. Um, it doesn't have as much, uh, like glue and binders in it. Um, But I also, part of the Healthy Tiny House kit is an exterior vapor barrier and an interior vapor barrier. So that kind of separates what is in the wall system a bit from what you are living close to and what you're breathing in. Um, And that wrap you also put under your floor and you just create this envelope um, and it's a vapor open interior vapor barrier. So it allows moisture to escape but not to get into the wall system and create more condensation or issues of thermal bridging. And same with the subfloor. Um, And then on the outside, I have clients who just use plywood um, for sheathing. And the house wrap on the exterior functions the same way. It's similar to like Gore-Tex rain jacket material. So you can go on a hike in the rain and be sweating and it will allow that moisture to escape, but you're not going to get wet in that jacket. Um, and, and so this vapor barrier, it acts that way. Um, and then on the outside, you know, you can always put a rain screen or something to add more ventilation to dry everything out. Um, but in terms of like the zip system sheathing, which is super common that has that embedded uh, acrylic later layer, it's basically like, uh, and you seal the seams, so it's basically like you're you're creating a plastic bag around your house. It's like you're in a zip a ziploc ziplock, zip-lock bag. To condense on the inside from regular, you know, living from showering, cooking, and breathing. Breathing is a huge one, or propane appliances that put off moisture, or the thermal bridging issue. Um, it won't be able to escape the wall system. Um, and that is a bit further from the air that you're breathing, um, especially if you do an interior wrap. So people who have severe chemical sensitivities, they typically don't go for that product. But um, it's not it's not right there in their breathing space.
0: Okay, so Zip System isn't the best, but it's also not terrible.
1: So it, it's a completely different style of building than what I recommend. Um, I focus on passive house design. So you want to create a wall system that's vapor open um, that will allow uh, air transfer and moisture to escape. So by putting the zip system sheathing, it kind of stops that from happening on the outside. Um, it's not it's not the worst, you know, but it's just not ideal for the kit that I've put together. Um but it does take a step out of the building process, too. So these are the the pros and cons that we weigh, right, when we're building um, the, the cost effectiveness and then that it, you don't have to wrap your house because it's already embedded in that sheathing. Um, and then, yeah, for interior, like, you know, cabinets or built-ins, um, I think, like, Apple ply, birch ply is is mostly okay. And I've worked with clients who have chemical sensitivities to the extent where they take a piece of the material and they put it into a jar. They put that jar out in the sun for three to four days. They open it up and they smell it. And if they get a smell or if they get a headache immediately, or they have one of their typical reactions, then they they know that that material isn't going to work for them. Um, and so these are these are people who are quite sick, honestly. You know, they have Lyme disease or they have genetic mutations that don't help that don't help their detox process. Um, and so those are ways that they can figure it out, but everybody's different and everyone's body, you know, functions differently.
0: Right. And I I would guess that in a tiny house, if you are chemically sensitive, it's it's a bigger challenge because there's such a smaller airspace and it's so easy to just seal yourself in if you're not being careful.
1: Yeah, I, I would say so, especially if you are working with a builder, um, because you don't necessarily have control over every step of the process and it makes it challenging for a builder as well. Um, but if you're building yourself, then you're, you're investigating, you're researching every step of the way anyway. So, I mean, it's, it's a huge task, but, um, but you have control over that process. And then, yeah, it is a really small space. So you need to focus on air quality. Um, And so another part of the kit uh, are heat recovery ventilation systems. Um, They're really small. They're basically like two laptop fans. They use less than um, two amps of energy and they can be hard, hardwired directly into DC if you're off the grid. And if you, if you want it to be that way or AC, um and that is really like the oxygen bubbles in a fish tank basically keeping everyone in the home breathing healthy fresh air um there's a filter in there it has a heat recovery ceramic core so if it's cold outside but warm inside it will take the energy basically the heat of the exiting air and put it into the cold air coming in so that your heat source doesn't have to work harder and it does the same um, in the other direction if you have air conditioning on inside and it's hot outside. Um, and, and I did the, the math a while back, uh, but basically one average size person in an average size tiny house, so like a 20 foot tiny home, will use up the air inside their house with everything closed when they're building, you know, as tight as we're building in about eight hours. Um, so if you have a, of, you know, another part, a person in there, if you have children, if it's a family, if you have a dog, um, that's just going to cut that time down considerably. And then you're going to start, uh, basically recycling your exhale. So you're going to start breathing in everyone's exhale. Um, which is, you know, it's a little gross, but it's also just, it's not healthy and it's not the type of air quality that you want in your home. Um, and I don't know if you've noticed, but living in a tiny house, you get a lot of dust um, because it's such a small space. And so that's another reason why people have dust allergies or asthma,s because uh, they don't have the the fresh air quality that's really important for our health.
0: Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. You know, I don't have my my HRV system um, set automatically, so. Like I turn it on manually, like when I get there essentially. Um, and I definitely notice if I arrive, you know, after a couple of days of being away, the house, like, it just feels kind of stuffy. It feels like there's not a lot of air yeah. in there.
1: Right, right. And I typically just leave mine on and it just it runs on low. Um, and it's just slowly, you know, refreshing the air. Right.
0: And so you recommend yeah. the, the Lunos products, correct?
1: Yeah, I sell two different units, um, and I also offer a custom quote for tiny house builders. Um, And so I will basically take their size home, um, get their dimensions, and I'll work up a custom quote. And depending on the size of the home, it depends if they need to pair up the two different units that I offer or if they can just get away with having one of them.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's talk about something that you mentioned earlier, which was um, thermal bridging from the trailer, which is something that I have never thought about.
1: Okay, sure. So basically when you're creating a wall system, it doesn't matter if it's the wall or if it's the subfloor or if it's the roof and the ceiling, you're going to treat it similarly. Um, And Something that is unique about tiny houses that that isn't the same for tiny houses on foundations or houses on foundations, which this is also something that I work with my bus conversion and van conversion clients on um, because they're working with a steel exterior shell the whole way. Same with container homes. Um, and steel, you know, metal is a huge conductor of temperature and with our trailers in our subfloor, yes, we are embedding, you know, hopefully six inches of insulation in there. Um, and you're hopefully getting at least like R25 in your subfloor, but depending on the trailer design, you still have these massive steel beams going across your and through your subfloor. And then you also have a giant flange around the perimeter, which connects your walls. And that's how you bolt your walls to the trailer. And so nothing is going to move. But that temperature transfer then can go straight through the trailer and into the wall system when it's cold outside, when you're in a cold climate. And that is really the reason why skirting is super important because you want to increase the temperature under your trailer, stop that cold wind from getting under there and, and stop that thermal bridging. So if you're in an RV or you're in a tiny house or a van and, or a bus conversion for a while, you really want to skirt it and you want to skirt it with something that, um, is really insulative. So I talk to people about, straw bales. Um, you know, people build amazing houses out of straw bales because you you can get a really high R, R value. Um, the other thing about straw bales is it's not that expensive. They can last several years. You can stack them up um, depending on how high you have your house. If you have it lifted off of the axles and the wheels, then you would stack probably two bales up because you want them to insulate that entire flange and a little bit above from where the wall meets the trailer. Um, and then something that wasn't available really, I, I I didn't come across it when I was starting to build, um, was building uh, like basically a wooden subfloor on top of the trailer. And there was a lot of talk back then and probably still about Um, increasing your interior space, right? We're only working with 13 feet, six inches high from the ground. And so to take up any of that, you lose it in your loft or you lose your headspace in your tiny house, uh, which isn't ideal. Um, But I have been advising people to build a frame of at least two inches up on the top of that steel flange and then bolting the wall system through that. Um, To just mitigate any possible issues of thermal bridging because tiny houses have major issues with they can have major issues of mildew and mold um, around where the wall meets your floor on the inside of the house, um, which is often covered up by built ins cabinets, stairs, couches you know, in a tiny house, pretty much all of the wall space in those areas is is covered. Right. So it's hard right. to get to it. It's hard to see it. It's hard to have um, fresh airflow ventilation in those spaces.
0: And that's caused because those areas get really cold and then moisture condenses and then doesn't dry because there's no airflow. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's it's just basically what's happening there is it's like you're taking a cold beer out of the fridge on a hot day. And instantly you get that condensation, um, right? And and a lot of the times you just you just don't see it until um, it's really pervasive in there.
0: Do you have a trick for making straw or hay bales last for more than one season as skirting? Because I have not yet cracked the code. I've I've tried doing them without anything, and they definitely yeah. are kind of soupy by the time spring rolls around Soupy and
1: growing mushrooms yeah i've done
0: i have put them in black contractor bags which isn't the most attractive look but then once they get covered up with snow that's okay and the ones that where the bag hasn't gotten punctured um those will be pretty decent in the in the spring but i'm curious if you have another uh tip
1: yeah um I guess my first thought is that if you're putting it into a plastic bag, then they can't breathe, so they're they're gonna any moisture that's in there is not gonna be able to escape, which will continue continue to break it down because it's a biodegradable material. Um, I I've just used mine for a couple of seasons, um, and they're okay, um, but I would recommend maybe putting some wood or or plastic or whatever on the top, or even some corrugated metal or something, um, so that you have less moisture penetrating them. Um, and then you can, you can cover, cover them up with like corrugated metal, if that looks nice or, or some other material that you have, but I've just had mine out. I haven't, um, yeah, it might, it it might
0: rain too much here. That just and that's might possible
1: be... too. I live in a dry climate right,
0: right. I mean, and even if they were covered from the top, the ground in this like right now in the spring it is just the ground is a sponge and anything that touches it is just gets soaked.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I have seen you know people build walls with straw bale and they cover it with um, a cob uh, you know or a plaster or something like that. Um, that would be more of a permanent solution. Um, which I would be super into, but that for me, that would be if I were in a spot where I owned the land and they took the house off the wheels and all of that.
0: Let's talk about, let's like continue into the house, um, and talk about paints, stains, those kinds of finishes. Um, what do you recommend?
1: Yeah. So, um, I, I'll say I'm not like the best expert on this, um, But I do know that Home Depot sells uh, zero VOC paint in many different colors. And that's typically um, what what I tell people to just go check out because it's it's not super expensive paint. Um, And that's what I used in my home. And then um, you can find now more and more often places are carrying low uh, VOC sealers, um, or different oils. I really like linseed oil, um, for like all of my woodwork, like my, um, live edges and, and things like that, but you definitely have to apply it more often. Right. And then Murdoch's hard sealer. I haven't used it myself, but I hear that it's a fantastic product, um, for wood countertops and wood floors. And there's lots of different applications for that.
0: What can people do to their houses, like after the fact? Like, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, uh, "I spray foam my tiny house, and I don't yeah. have, um, I don't have an HRV. Like, I don't know. I don't have
1: an interior vapor barrier. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like I
0: don't have a vapor barrier. I don't know whether like there's mold growing under my walls. Like, what options are there for them?"
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, I, I always say to install an HRV, um, you can retroactively, you can retrofit it and put it in. Um, and depending on the climate, you know, if you're in a warm climate that doesn't really have four seasons and then, then you just want to have your windows open a lot, then you're getting the fresh air. But if you're in a colder climate where you, you want your windows closed, um, in the winter time, then I would recommend installing an HRV. Um, and I would also really recommend like doing an investigation in your house and like looking under your couch and looking at those, the corners of your house where the walls meet the the floor um, and just kind of assess what's going on. Um, another spot that's pretty brutal when it happens is under the mattress. And I don't know if you've experienced this at all, but um, a lot of people will just slap a mattress down on a loft floor, and typically there's you know a bathroom under that loft floor, and there's a lot of moisture coming up. Um, and so checking that out, making sure that there isn't mildew growing under there, and also uh, building a slat system for the mattress um, to just to create some ventilation, and then being conscious of flipping your mattress. Fairly like frequently, I would say in a tiny house to flip it like every season. Um, If that's too much, then at least twice a year.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. And I remember reading about that, and so I immediately checked. And you know, for the first several years, we just had a futon right on the loft, and then now we have a latex um, mattress. But haven't had any problem in my house. But I definitely, uh, I concur with your recommendation that. Um,
1: yeah. And then another thing that I, uh, have people look into is like, what is their heat source? Um, because wood stoves are, you know, they take up space. It's sort of a focal point of the home and it, and it also takes up your time and energy and, you know, having to get up in the middle of the night and stoke a wood stove because it's tiny, (laughs) um, and add a couple of logs like that, that's, that takes time and energy that, that maybe people didn't expect to do in the beginning. Um, But that's a really awesome dry heat source. Um, And so it's not going to be adding to any moisture issues inside the home. And it's actually going to dry it out in the wintertime when you're running the wood stove and when you have possible moisture and thermal bridging issues anyway. So I actually just... I installed a wood stove in my house a couple weeks ago, and this I've lived in my house for two winters, and I decided that I w- I was ready. I really wanted to build fires again, and I wanted to, to have that in there, but also for the dry heat.
0: So is that something that you installed in addition to another heat source, or did you remove your other heat source?
1: Um, currently, it's in addition, but I've stopped using uh, my propane heater, and I'll be taking that out.
0: So do you, I guess in your climate, do you experience really cold temperatures?
1: Well, f- not really cold. I mean, I would say in Colorado, last winter, I experienced like a week or two that was between zero and 10, 15 degrees. And then this past winter, it really didn't get colder than 10 degrees. Um, but when you have a temperature difference of 20 degrees, so if it's 20 degrees outside and 70 degrees inside, and then you have a wall system that's only four or five inches thick, um, you're gonna have uh, more of a 20-degree difference, and then that's gonna cause that thermal bridging and that condensation. Um an- so another thing that I actually learned was I installed a radiant heating, electric radiant heating mat under the tile in my bathroom. Um, when I did it, I thought it was a great idea because I would add a little bit more heat in the bathroom for the plumbing around there, um, you know, and it would be kind of uh, nice to have a warm floor. Um, but after a winter in Colorado, I actually was under my trailer, resecuring my gray water lines before I moved across the country, and I noticed uh, about two cups of water come out. Um, and I, I totally freaked out. I actually thought I had a leak in my pipes. Um, and I pulled all of the metal flashing down from the belly pan, the underside of my trailer, and I could see that it was only where that radiant mat was, um, that there was only condensation along the steel beams, um, under the mat, which is which is only four feet by three feet, you know. Um, and so that's kind of how I ruled out that it was that thermal bridging issue um and the condensation was was coming down and pooling and didn't have a way to get out of that that metal belly pan. Um and so I've actually stopped using my radiant mat. Um I also put some uh some holes down there for ventilation and for moisture to be able to escape. Um, but people who come to me and they say that they're going to do radiant heating throughout their entire house, um, we have like a full conversation about it.
0: About the risks of, of heating up the metal underneath and creating a lot of condensation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, when you think about it, it's like, it's a great idea. Heat rises, you know, you have a warm floor, which most tiny houses, that's the coldest part of the house um but you have to seriously think about the subfloor that you're building and really um building up on top of that trailer and that trailer flange to have radiant heat
0: so let's talk um cooking because i know that cooking releases quite a bit of of gasses you know uh, aerosolized oils and smoke and things that definitely aren't healthy for us especially when they kind of collect So um, obviously I'm sure you recommend that everybody puts in a range hood above their stove. What other things should people be thinking about in that department?
1: Another thing that I do is not only turn, so whenever you turn on an exhaust fan, you are depressurizing the space in the the home or in the room that's closed off. In a tiny house, it's the entire house. and that this, this also applies to the bath fan when you're just turning it on exhaust, what it's going to do is it's going to suck that air out. Um, and which is great, which is what you want, but it's also going to pull anything from the wall system or from all of that dust and everything into your breathing space, So which contributes to, um, dust allergies because there's dust mites that then are brought into the air, um, and asthma. And so you always want to make sure that you're you're cracking a window and for a tiny house to do it like on the other side of the house so that it just pulls all of that air, all of that smoke. Um and same thing if you're if you have a propane stove um when you're lighting that just to immediately turn on an exhaust fan. Um, I also turn on my Lunos Ego, which is two feet away and three feet away in my bathroom and I turn that on exhaust also just to get more air circulating. Um, because yeah, I mean, I don't really know how to, it depends on what you cook, right? (laughs) Um, if you're burning popcorn or like cooking bacon, you're going to have a lot more of those, um, those toxins, those carcinogens going into your breathing space. But if you're more of like a plant-based eater, then possibly not. Um, so yeah, just like increasing airflow, I think, um, is probably the best for that.
0: Um, so I was curious now that we've, now that I've grilled you about healthy tiny houses, I'd love to hear more about your own tiny house and your tiny house story. Um, so take us back. What, um, you know, when did you start, what made you decide to do it and, and tell us about your house?
1: Yeah. So I am from Colorado, um, but I was living in Bellingham, Washington. I went to school there. I was living there for about six years and I was actually studying to be a midwife, um, but, I, but in school, I studied sustainable agriculture and sustainable living, which is basically permaculture. So I had done some permaculture courses. I had gone to Latin America and studied biodynamic agriculture and natural building, had done some cob building, which is a combination of straw, sand and clay and water. Um, if you're familiar with earth ships, um, they use a lot of cob. You can build walls with cob and bottles and it's uh, really insulative. Um, and, and very healthy for air quality. So when I moved back to Colorado and I decided I wasn't ready to be a midwife, um, I just wanted to travel some more and I was living in my parents' basement and really just had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and I came across the tiny house movement again, kind of got re-inspired by all of that and, uh, started thinking that maybe I could take this time and build in my parents' backyard Um, and live there for free. I'm really fortunate to be able to have lived in my parents' house and not have had to pay rent and take that rent and put it towards building my house. And then also to have a space to do it. Um, A lot of people who want to become part of the tiny house community and build their own house, they don't have those resources available. Um, And also with the legal issues of tiny houses. that that's a barrier as well. So anyway, um, I started researching tiny houses, basically uh, looking at tons of different blogs online and uh, researching building and talking with uh, local builders and anyone I could really have a conversation with. Um, and I was connected to a green builder in Colorado. Uh, his name's Cody Farmer and his company is Mainstream Corporation. He focuses on passive house design, which is a uh, a way of designing homes out of Germany um, and the majority of the materials in the Healthy Tiny House Kit are used in passive houses. Um, So the idea is that the house itself is going to function really well on its own. it, kind of the idea of like earth ships and passive solar heating the space and helping to grow your food, et cetera. Um, and, and then I went traveling and I just told myself that if I thought about tiny houses, you know, a lot, uh, I would do it when I got back. Um, and I probably talked and thought about tiny houses every single day for three and a half months. And the minute I got back, I ordered my trailer and started, um, Stockpiling materials and ordering materials. Um, and looking back, that's one of the things I think that I would have done differently. I probably would have had more time beforehand to collect materials, and I would have spent less on my house uh, by doing that. Um, and then I needed it to be dried in basically by end of October, November, in Colorado. So that was a big push. Um, and at first I thought that I wanted to use all reclaimed materials, um, the blogs and the videos I had come across online. Uh, I now looking back, I don't know if they were that accurate. I mean, I'm sure they were accurate for this, for that person's story, but for me, I just, I couldn't stockpile the materials and I wanted my house to be, you know, efficient and function really well in in Colorado, which can be an extreme climate, hot in the summer, cold in the winter. Um, and I felt like the resources online weren't, didn't, they didn't work for me because at first I thought I could build my house for 15 grand and use all reclaimed materials, you know? And then I just started having, um, kind of like nightmares of breaking down on the side of the road with a reclaimed trailer and, you know, things just like going wrong in the home because of the materials. Um, And that led me down a path to focus on getting a trailer specifically uh, for tiny homes. um, And that rather than supporting the weight in the middle, like a car hauler, they support the exterior weight of the walls and the roof. Um, and then I also linked up with Volstruct in Austin, Texas. They do steel framing. Um, I wasn't, I didn't feel confident in my, um, well, I had no building experience. (laughs) Um, I didn't feel confident in building the frame. And what I really loved about the steel was that, um, it's 50% lighter than wood, 25% stronger. So great for snow loads. Um, it's also 100% recyclable. So I I was really looking at the life cycle and the lifespan of my house. Um, people go tiny for so many different reasons. And for me, it's re- mostly environmental. Um, and so building with materials that would end up in a landfill forever when the house is taken down, whether it's 50 years or 100 years or whenever... Um, just seemed really hypocritical to me. And so that's when I started focusing on like the steel framing and having biodegradable insulation, um, and creating basically a shell, the bones of the house that were really strong and really efficient. And then the rest I could reclaim and I could modify and have fun with, um, design wise. Um, and I just love the fact that when you build your own space, you can find materials that have different stories. Um, and I could talk about this forever, but, uh, one of the stories that I love the most is that the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art, they were taking out their flooring, which had been in there for 80 years. And, uh, they just had an ad on Craigslist and I, I went there and they asked me to just, you know, give them an offer. And so I offered them 200 bucks for 400 square feet and they were like, yeah, sure. Um, you know, two conditions, you pick it up tomorrow and it was, uh, in the middle of a snowstorm and you send us, yeah. And you send us photos, um, when it's done. And I was like, great. So we picked up all of this, um, flooring and, and what I love about it is my mom's a dancer my parents have been to parties and they had danced on that floor um then i pulled it out i denailed it cleaned all the tongue and grooves put it through the planer um we installed it uh rented one of those stand up sanders and sanded it down and sealed it um but i had so much left over that i was able to cut the tongue and groove off and my dad actually got really passionate about um creating the countertop so we made a butcher block countertop and you know it's the stair treads as well um and honestly, you know, I, I do have friends who are young female builders who have built their tiny homes by themselves uh, with little to no building experience. Um, but I feel really fortunate that my dad got super into the project. He's like as into tiny houses, if not more than I am. And we ended up building it together um, which was like an amazing bonding experience. Um, but also really helped me with my motivation to get through the project. It took me two and a half years, uh, because I was working full time. He was working full time. So it was kind of like a weekend warrior project or, you know, we had a lot of nights staying up until one or 2 AM. Um, and now, you know, I've been living in my house for two years and I can look at all of the, the quirks, I call them like the beauty marks of my house, you know, where, where a project kind of went wrong or something wasn't installed exactly how it should be or as beautifully as it should be. But, you know, those are all like stories and memories and um, just, it just brings back the whole building experience. So I'm really grateful to be living in a space that I designed and I was able to build with my dad. It's really cool.
0: That's great. So one thing that I like to ask, uh, all of my guests is what are two or three resources that helped you along the way, uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think tiny nest, um, they're in Canada, um, in BC, they have great, uh, videos and, um, information like building information um with their house and they're actually one of the 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 people or tiny house people who have come out saying that they've been having some condensation issues um so they have some great videos on how to build a subfloor on top of the trailer to um deal with that oh what else probably um Tiny House Giant Journey back then um, was she was more focused on her blog for like the building projects Um, and that was helpful to see like what materials they used, what appliances they used and be able to um, gather all that info and make my own decisions. And then just like watching tons of YouTube videos and, um, like living big in a tiny house, Bryce and Rasa, they came out and did a tour video of my house, which was super fun. Cause I had been watching their videos throughout my whole build. Um, and that's just like in their videos are really inspiring and really help you with, um, the, the design ideas, I guess, and and what works for you. I love that about tiny houses that you could be really into cooking. So you want to have a big kitchen or someone else might not be that into cooking, but they really want to have a big couch. And um, even though everyone's pretty much working with the same footprint, um, they can just be so creative and so fun.
0: Isabel, Nagel, Bryce, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Um, I will link to everything that we talked about, including your website and social profiles um, on the show notes page for the episode.
1: Awesome. Thank you. This was really fun.
0: Thank you so much to Isabel Nagel Bryce for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes, including links to the resources that Isabel mentioned, at thetinyhouse.net slash 055. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 055. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.